Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode of the podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Manal Bakai. She is the National Director for Primary Care Transformation at NHS England. She's also a GP and an expert advisor at NICE. Now, when I invite people to come onto the podcast, it would be really easy for me. And I also don't think people would want to come on for me to just quiz them on the latest policy. I think those conversations are really helpful, but I don't think they're best suited for this podcast. This podcast is best suited for listeners that want to learn about health and care leaders and what they're a little bit like behind the scenes and the things that interest them, challenges they've experienced, how they approach certain situations, what their hobbies are and what some of their personal views are on what is happening at the moment. And I had that absolute pleasure of having that exact conversation with Manal today. We did touch upon the recovery plan for primary care. And I did say, you know, is it that modern, (laughs) this modern general practice access? But the conversation is so much more than that. And I think that way back when, when I wanted to start inviting NHS directors, it was for them to come on and humanise them. Like these are people, I see them out and about and I see the things that are written about people and the direction of travel online and feedback is important and not everybody's going to like it and not everybody should like it but they are people so I just wanted to set the mood and the tone for this podcast I've really really enjoyed it and yes she's a powerhouse very inspiring enjoy Hi, Manel. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Tara. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I've been very excited today. Could you share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. So I'm a GP. I work in Halston in Brent in northwest London, so a very deprived part of the country. And I've been a GP there for over 10 years. And I also have a national role. So I'm director for primary care transformation at NHS England. What does being the director of primary care transformation mean? Good question. A broad title. Essentially, for me, it's about how do we scale learning across the NHS, but particularly across primary care. And the reason I say that is that we are working in a really challenging environment. And we are being asked to change 
and the, the changes that we are needing to make in order for particularly primary care to be sustainable are complex and adaptive changes. So that means that we need to drive commitment rather than compliance because it's continuous improvement that we need to embed. And traditionally, as the NHS, we have invested a lot in driving change through contracts and micro incentives, but that drives compliance and not necessarily commitment. So for me, it's about radically changing the way in which we enable and support and lead complex adaptive change. So our programmes of work translate that essentially. So we are launching the General Practice Improvement Programme, which is part of the recovery plan for primary care that's just been published a month or so ago. And what that looks to do is to make the process of change easier. So we know that change is best led when those closest to the challenges on the ground are enabled to innovate. But what we're then doing nationally is collating all of that excellent practice, the amazing work that general practice has been doing, evaluating it, codifying it to make the process of change easier and to make the realisation of benefit faster. But we're also trying to embed the infrastructure for sustainability. So like I said, it's that continuous improvement cycle. So it's about building the capability and skills to enable continuous improvement, both within our own teams, but also at every level of the organisation. So we become an enabling organisation. And then I think it's about making sure that we become active learners. And so it's moving away from perhaps the traditional approach of assurance to really thinking about how we share learning, feedback loops, listening, and particularly through local and national communities of practice, because they're a great place to test and share ideas. And then finally, it's about thinking about the tools that we need to enable change, particularly digital tools, and how do we make them more usable, more accessible for the public, and also provide the right functionality to support primary care, deliver transformation. It's really about investing in the culture and the leadership, the peer-to-peer learning, the capability building, and data-driven improvements, new ways of delivering large-scale, complex, adaptive change. Going back to the General Practice Improvement Leaders Programme, is that delivered by Time for Care? So there have been multiple iterations of team names. But yes, traditionally, the team was the Time for Care team. It then evolved into the General Practice Improvement team and they're now the Primary Care Transformation team. But actually, what I've done is I've merged two teams together. So the digital first team that led digital transformation in primary care are coming together with the improvement experts in primary care to form one team because collectively that's the experience and the expertise we need and we shouldn't be looking at digital transformation in a silo from wider transformation. The only reason why I wanted to say that, and I always say this to people, and I messaged somebody the other day, I used to work in the Time for Care team. And I say to people, if you're going to do any training, and I provide training, you're going to do any training, I would do the General Practice Improvement Leaders Programme. But you'll get out what you put in. It's like with anything, but I always rave about it and I always use it. And so much so, I did kind of a 
presentation training locally with Dr. Maya Vibhuti and was just saying, I think I got trained in quality improvement. It's just like what I do. It's just how I think. I don't think, oh, I'm getting out my tool or anything like that. It's just, I'm not a purist, but you can make it usable and it not feel boring or not feel laborious. So any of my peers listening and they're thinking, I don't have time or what training do I do? I mean, after PhD training, I would definitely recommend the General Practice Improvement Leaders Programme. Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So I wanted to ask you, guidance comes down. How do you manage the negativity? How do you manage people going online or probably coming to you directly saying, why have you done this? Or why are we doing that? Or it's not enough money. Or why have you said it like this? And why have you not said that? How do you manage that? I think the first thing to say is that we do need to move away from kind of a top down approach. So just going back to everything we do with the program has come from practices and PCNs and primary care. It's their innovation that they have driven locally. So for me, I think the key is the way that we make organisations smarter is through the power of networks. And it's about democratising knowledge. So we all collectively can get to the right solutions faster. And essentially, that's what we are doing. So I think for me, it's about moving away from organisations only being as smart as the person at the top. It's about distributive leadership. So just going back to that complex adaptive change piece, there is no heroic leader here that has all of the solutions to the complex, challenging issues that the NHS is facing. And we collectively need to have deep conversations about the fuzzy issues. That's what I call them. Very technical term. And really respect the work that the people on the ground are doing and respect that they have the wisdom to shape the new possibilities. And so it's really about sharing what those possibilities could be and then being able to turn them into knowledge and information and resources to support others in picking those up. And how we do that, I think, is about firstly, well, what I've learned through the programmes that we've run to date is engaging early. So it's about helping people make sense of the information. What does this mean to me? What does this mean locally? How does this align to our values, our purpose, the different things that motivate us? So I think there's a sense-making piece there. The more we engage, the more we engage people in discussion, the, the greater diversity of forums that we have for engagement really helps. I think the second thing is peer ambassadors. So many of our peers will have gone through similar challenges to us. We all feel like we're quite different, but actually our challenges are very similar. And often what we're trying to improve is very similar. And I've certainly found that through our improvement programs. Every practice that we've worked with wants to improve their ability to manage demand, to improve their patient's experience, to improve their staff experience and to develop their team. These are recurring themes. What we provide are tools to help people know where to start and to support them in making progress against those kind of unified challenges. And I think all of the evidence points to social networks as being probably the most powerful tool for spread and adoption of innovation. So we've got to tap into those. I think the other thing is about setting some really clear expectations. 
you can't do change without investing energy and effort. And I think it goes back to your point, Tara. The more you put in, the more you get out. The more of your whole team that you involve, the more transformational the change is. So I think it's about helping identify the port needs. We all have unknown unknowns. So we've developed a tool, for example, to help ICBs and practices start to have some of those discussions about where they are on their transformation journey and what their support needs are. And that provides consistency and transparency for everybody in terms of what support they need and how resource can then be targeted to those that need it the most or would benefit the most. But it's then also being really clear on the expectations, the give-get what you're going to have to put in to get the most out of something. And then I think the narrative is really, really important. So language is super important, as we all know. We need to make sure that we do that translation piece right. And that requires everybody at every level of the organisation being clear on, on the narrative. And then the more that we can help people come together to think about what is their local goal or goals What's their shared purpose? What brings them together? What bonds them, I suppose, is really important because then that helps anchor the changes that we're trying to make. On a human level, though, how do you manage all of the variety of feedback? Is it overwhelming or is it just like you think, oh, this is, you know, feedback is a gift. This is amazing. There's a lot going on and you're very visible, which is amazing. For me, I've really thought hard about what sustains my energy, what keeps my energy up. So I think for me, it's about some of the intellectual. I'm curious. Often feedback is data and that's really important. It helps with problem solving. Often I invite feedback. I want to be open to different perspectives and adapt my perspective accordingly. I think it's also keeping my energy up through some of the social energy that is needed collaborating, connecting with people can feel quite invigorating. That's where you often think creatively in those spaces. I guess spiritual, the work that I do is truly aligned to my values. I've got a really strong sense of purpose and that kind of keeps me going. Having the psychological safe spaces to reflect I think reflection is really important, making, they say, the invisible visible. But if you don't take time to observe the dynamics around you, then it can often amplify the challenging circumstances. And often we can then adopt counterintuitive behaviour. So it's really being able to take that time. And I do that through talking to my team. I have a coach who is brilliant and I would thoroughly recommend everybody gets a coach if they don't have one already. And also my family are a really great support network. I have a husband who's also a GP, so he gets it. And so he's an incredible source of support for me. And then I think it's also just that kind of physical energy. So when you make progress, you see quick wins. I get emails from practices that say we went through the improvement program. And before we started, we were at the point of handing back our contract. This was our last resort. And now we are a million miles away from where we started. That really adds to my energy and helps keep all of this sustainable. I think also, you know, just recognizing what you can influence and what you can't influence, I think is really important. There are definitely things that I can influence and that's where I really focus my energy and effort. But of course, if you're being personally attacked, then there's probably not that much you can do about it. You might try to get under the skin of things because often people are feeling threatened and and it's helpful to identify what those threats might be and how you can allay that. 
but sometimes you can't. And I think it's then being able to kind of draw a line there. So you've got an MBE. Where were you when you found out that you had been awarded this amazing (laughs) achievement? Actually, in a, a workshop about community pharmacy. How did you find out? So I got an email from the honours team to let me know that I'd been awarded an MBA and then to check what my real name was and to really check my identity. So, so that was interesting. But then they also say at the end of the email, you must not tell anybody, which is really, really difficult. How long between you getting the email and then you going to Buckingham? Was it Buckingham Palace? Oh, no, I haven't gone yet. So I'm going okay. to Windsor on the 11th of July. Looking forward to that. So yes, it's been a little while, actually. So yeah, but very, very exciting. exciting. Were you surprised? Like, how was the process? I take it somebody nominates you or people nominate you? Yes, yeah, so you don't ever find out who nominates you. And then I think you're sponsored by different government departments. Still not super clear on what the actual process was. But you get nominated. It goes through a panel who I think validate that you are deserving. And then, of course, you get told that you've got it. And yeah, I mean, I was completely surprised. I had no idea, no idea that I'd be nominated. And so I had no idea that it was coming. And it's a real privilege, Tara, obviously. And it's truly humbling because actually there are loads of people who do incredible work in the NHS and not everybody gets recognised for it. So I feel truly humbled that I have been recognised. And of course, while I as an individual have been recognised, and that's wonderful, I could not have done this without my brilliant team who are just amazing on every level, but also without all of the networks that I've been talking about, my colleagues that I've worked with, the profession, everybody has been driving this change. So that feels really, really special to me. What it's really made me think about more recently is, you know, what the opportunities are that come with this in terms of what I can do for others, how I can ensure others are recognised. I particularly feel as a kind of minority ethnic woman often, and I, I talk about this at tech conferences, I often go into a digital conference and I'm one of five women and probably one of three minority ethnic women at the conference. And so if I can do it, anybody can do it and how, how I can help support others in this space. And so that's something I'm really exploring at the moment. Well, congratulations. Who was the last person you spoke to who was a colleague? Oh, well, I spoke to a whole team of people. I spoke to all our regional colleagues this morning. I need one person. How would they describe you in like three to five words? Well, okay, I'm thinking of Mary, my deputy dad. So I speak to her often. I mean, Mary has obviously given me feedback, so I kind of know what she would say. But I think Mary would say that I'm motivating, that I strive for high quality and so really drive our team to be the absolute best it can be and to deliver really high quality work and that I'm supportive. I like to invest time in my team and develop my team. And then she'd probably say that I need to have more boundaries between my work life and my personal life. Is there anything else you could imagine her saying around any areas that could warrant some development, any weaknesses, dare I say? Mary messages me almost every day at seven and says, have you logged off yet? (laughs) 
And I think it's a double-edged sword because I'm so invested and I believe so much in what we're trying to do. It's really difficult to compartmentalise that sometimes between work and home and to not think about work, for example, when you're at home. And so that's an active process, I think, for me. And my coach in particular really helps me with that. I have two young kids, so almost, you know, they're great at helping me to do that because I have to feed them, I have to give them a bath, (laughs) I have to put them to bed. But that is probably my greatest challenge, that I bring my whole self to work and therefore that can take its toll. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. Have you had a period in your current role, in your director role, where the balance of work and home tipped too far into work and affected your home life? I think the pandemic is probably a good example of that because, of course, there was so much to do during, particularly at the start of the pandemic, and there were not enough people. And particularly for my programme of work, which was around the digital transformation, Essentially, we delivered the programme, a five-year programme, within three to six months. And so we were working non-stop, 14-hour days, weekends. At the same time, my son, at that point, he was just one, just turned one, and his nursery had closed. So I was trying to juggle a one-year-old at home as well as work. And I had to get an emergency nanny because normally the grandparents would really help us with childcare. But at the time, with all the unknowns around COVID, we didn't want to expose them to any risks. So that was really challenging. And then for a short period, my daughter was also at home and I was trying to juggle homeschooling my one-year-old and work. And so that was incredibly challenging. And we did manage to get through it. My husband is also, as I said, a GP. So it was also working incredibly hard during the pandemic period. But you do manage to get through it but it's probably not the ideal way of working and living as a family so it was relatively short-lived but that was a really challenging time for us. I'm sure and I'm sure every leader would say you don't want your team to work over and above their hours you want them to come to work be at work go home be at home. Do you think you can succeed only by doing nine to five if you are ambitious and you are driven and you want to progress? Can you do that nine to five and have that perfect life balance? Or is there this, no one wants to admit it, but actually the hours do matter? It's a good question. And it's actually something I'm exploring at the moment with my team. 
So it almost feel like ask me in six months to see. (laughs) I think there is definitely more we can do. So I don't know whether it's the nine to five, but I certainly think it can be way better than what we're doing now. I think this is where process can be really helpful. So I think whether it's in your practice or whether it's in our national team at NHS England, there can be a lot of duplication. There can be, you know, what we would call failure demand. And so I think having real clarity around process. So it's being really disciplined about roles and responsibilities, about the processes that you're going to follow. It's about ensuring you don't sabotage those processes yourself. It's being cognizant to where you yourself might sabotage some of those processes. So, for example, it's really important to me that the team are activated and feel activated, empowered to drive forward and lead pieces of work. And there is always a temptation that if they send me an early draft, I might dive in. And so don't send me early drafts because I'm likely to sabotage the process. So it's being really cognizant of where you might sabotage your own processes and then putting in mitigations to avoid you doing that and also being open and vulnerable so that everybody else knows when you might do that and call you out for doing it. So I think that's really important. I think it's important to understand how much work we are all doing to make sure that we're trying to distribute the work as equally as possible across everybody. I think it's also about learning how to change gears So for so long, particularly during the pandemic period, we've all been working at probably 200% and forget what it's like to be at 100% or 50% sometimes. And I think it's being, again, that self-awareness of what gear do you need to be in and when for what work. So I do think it's possible, but I think it takes a lot of discipline and skill. And it's about co-producing this with your team. Perhaps I'll come back to you and let you know. I think those of people listening that are used to working at 200 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour feels like they're not doing anything. You know, they create work because they're so used to being back to back, back to back meetings. And whilst they'll moan about it the whole time, when they don't have that, when they have got a clear day, it's like they don't know what to do. They've got nothing to do, but yet they've got that time to strategically plan and do the admin and all the stuff that the meetings generate. So I can definitely relate to it but I've not cracked it. I think one thing that people have said to me before is how many more summers do you have left? And if you think about it, like that's kind of a bit of a shock tactic, I suppose. But if you do think about, you know, how many summers do you have left and what would you like to do with your life and those summers? Sometimes that helps put things back into perspective a little bit that, you know, of course, this is incredibly important. And we're all working 200% because we're truly invested in what we're doing. But we're also probably invested in our family and our friends and other elements of our lives. And so that can be helpful just to think about what are our priorities. What was the last thing you said no to? Somebody asked you to do something, be somewhere, speak somewhere. And you said, thank you, but no, thank you. Good question. I did say no to Comfed, but that was partly because of the junior doctor strikes and I was in clinic. So that's probably a bit of a cop-out answer. (laughs) I was approached recently for a NED role to work as a a NED on a a trust board. And I really thought about it because it was a really exciting role, thinking about how to integrate primary and secondary care better, to be better integrated as part of the wider ICS. 
really embedded transformation and digital transformation. It's a really exciting role, quite a difficult one to say, I suppose, to say no to. And I thought about it long and hard, but I did say no. And I think that came back to what are my priorities at the moment? What's my work-life balance? Where do I want to invest my time? And what can I do well with the time that I've got? So sometimes I worry that if you stretch yourself too far, then you're unable to put the effort into where it really needs to be. So that was a no, and that was a difficult no. But again, it comes from really feeling well-informed. So really thinking about what's happening. You know, I'm a constant learner, I think is how I would describe myself. I'm very comfortable being in beta mode constantly. And I think that helps kind of understand what's coming, what's on the horizon, where do you really need to focus your energy? Where do you need to focus your attention? That helps me make better decisions, particularly when you're time constrained on where you need to focus your time and effort. So what is on the horizon for us working in primary care networks? So I think it's two things, Tara. I think it goes back to that transformation piece. We're in a context where demand is up at least 15%. Capacity, particularly GP capacity, nursing capacity is down. We've lost 3.3% full-time equivalent GPs since 2019. We're seeing a fall in the number of GP partners. We are seeing a fall in the number of practices. It's a really challenging time for general practice, particularly general practice sustainability, because I think while we're all feeling the pressure, that impact is most strongly felt in areas of higher deprivation. And we're seeing that in the data where practices working in the most deprived areas are finding it harder to stretch their capacity to meet the rising demand. So for me, there's a real sustainability risk and that creates this burning platform for change. And so we absolutely need to continue to focus on recruitment and retention of both clinical staff, but also non-clinical staff and investing in that management capacity, but also the transformation capacity. And, And we've made some progress on that by introducing the PCN digital and transformation lead role, which I think is a really positive step forwards. But I think it's also about having to change the way that we work. So we have to be fairer and more equitable and have a more sustainable model than perhaps the traditional model was. We need to be able to prioritise care based on need. We need to optimise the use of our wider multi-professional teams. And we need to use data to be able to see all our demand, to make informed choices, to be able to plan well. It's about how we work collaboratively together and then forming part of a kind of a wider integrated neighbourhood set of services, how we join up some of those services, particularly around population health and population need to really prioritise those that need the most support. And that then I think underpins how we may start to tackle some of the health inequalities that we have as well. And that will, so from a primary care network perspective, that will extend beyond 23-24? Yes. Last few questions. What do you think your colleagues would be surprised to know about you? That I have an interesting set of skills. So I guess people can make assumptions when they see you, but actually my career path has been slightly convoluted. And after I completed my GP training, I became a GP partner because that's all I knew. And that was great, but I always felt there was something missing for me. 
And so I made a brave decision to leave my partnership after a few years. And I didn't have anything to go to, didn't have any plans that felt particularly risky. I then did join the practice that I'm working at now, but I also worked for a health tech company. So I worked in industry. It was at the time where digital health was emergent and definitely wasn't mainstream. And there was a real tension where I was working between commercial and clinical. So it was a very commercially driven industry. The clinical was a nice to have. It was a kind of stamp of approval, but it wasn't embedded into the ways of working and developing services. And so I became very involved in service development. So I learned to develop products and services alongside developers and coders to really start embedding the clinical viewpoint into the service. And so I did a lot of work in how embedding safeguarding and clinical governance into the services thereafter. I worked with the CQC and other regulators, but also worked with the board of this organisation to really highlight the importance of the clinical voice. The whole service was revamped and we started to set some standards in digital health with the CQC. And not only did that lead to much safer set of services across the board nationally, but also commercial providers started to see the benefits of having clinicians on board, not just from a safety perspective, but actually it would improve the quality of their services and they could use that to then support, you know, broadening their market essentially. I think that was really important. And I'm not sure people necessarily know about that, about me. I think the other thing probably is that I used to be part of the RAF and I learned to pilot (laughs) aircrafts. And my team are always surprised by that because my eyesight now is not so brilliant. And I'm always like, can you make that bit bigger on the screen? (laughs) They're like, please never fly anything. (laughs) Very cool. Just to wrap up, the recovery plan is out. There's lots of guidance and I think it's written in a really easy to comprehend and succinct way. But for a practice that may be really struggling, really, really struggling, what one area would you point them towards in the recovery plan to help them just think about things differently? I would say the general practice improvement program. But the reason I say that is actually... You know, I I mentioned that I'm a GP in Halston, really challenging area to work in. And the reason it's really challenging is, is because, you know, most of my patients have not completed education. They've not had the same training opportunities as most other people. Those in employment are typically in low-income jobs or or on zero-hour contracts. And we had one of the highest prevalence of COVID and mortality rates from COVID. Uh, We've got some of the highest prevalence rates of diabetes, mental health, cancer, cardiovascular disease in the country. And a few years ago, we as a practice were in crisis. And actually, we were at sustained crisis point. So the practices that you're describing, that was us. And it's a really horrible place to be. So staff were constantly facing abuse. Patients were really unhappy. Our appointment wait times were very long. Uh, We weren't able to provide continuity in the way that we wanted to. And typically it was those with the sharpest elbows getting through week on week. We recognised that we weren't providing care to our most vulnerable and those that needed us the most. It was taking a personal toll on everybody. All of us, all the clinicians were very stressed. Nobody was going home anywhere near what you would class as reasonable time. 
I was missing out, for example, on my on seeing my kids before bedtime. So it really was felt unsustainable. We couldn't continue the way that we worked. And so we changed our way of working. We completely changed our way of working. We moved to the modern general practice model that's described in the recovery plan. Of course, nothing is a magic bullet. It's not a magic bullet. We are still busy, but we are nowhere near where we were a few years ago. It does feel much more manageable. Staff are much happier. Patients are much happier. We're providing a much more responsive service. We've got much better continuity of care. And we feel safer and more equitable. But what I would say is making change when you're at crisis point is a really difficult thing to do. And that's not something that I would want other practices to have to go through. And so what the program has done is is it's it's tried to make that process of change much easier and make the realisation of benefits faster and identify quick wins, as well as some of the longer term changes that can really transform your way of working and help you feel like you've got more control back over your working life. And that's through expert support. You know, Tara, you talked about the Time for Care team. These are folk that have worked in primary care. Some are GPs, some are practice managers. They have lots of experience in primary care. We work with delivery partners that have delivered over 40,000 sessions to primary care. And so it's about tapping into that support to help you take you through that journey and help you see the benefits faster. So I'd agree with that. The only thing I would say about a recovery plan is what I think is interesting is it's called like modern general practice access. And is it that modern? It's not new. (laughs) It's what we've been, many of us, you know, as practices have been doing. And it may be that we've been doing elements of it. And what this is about is it's bringing those cumulative benefits together. So it's knitting it all together into a model. And what it's really doing is it's making each of those steps as robust and as effective as possible. But you're quite right. It's not brand new. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.